Turn with me, if you will, once more today to the book of Psalms, and we're coming this morning to Psalm 93. Psalm 93. Fathers, we come again to your word. I pray very simply that you would speak. God, you, you do speak, uh, obviously, in your word, whether we hear it or not. So perhaps the best thing that we should pray is that uh, you would help us to hear, to listen, to believe, to rejoice, to obey. Come by your Holy Spirit and help me speak your words today and help us hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to say to you that As was the case a week ago in Psalm 91, the psalmist this morning once again would bring us, I think, in our mind's eyes inside a grand building. Last Sunday, the psalmist's poetry carried us behind the walls of a great citadel, a stronghold, a mighty fortress, and he taught us something about God there. And today, The psalmist is going to transport us not so much into a defensive castle, not so much into a fortress, as into a grand palace. Today we are going to enter behind the walls of a splendid royal dwelling. And specifically, the psalmist is going to walk us right into its throne room. That's where we will find ourselves as we read Psalm 93 this morning, in the throne room, where the king sits on his throne in all his splendor and majesty and regal grandeur. Listen in to it now as the psalmist describes it to us here in this psalm. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves more than the sound of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. As we said about fortresses a week ago, we don't really either have palaces in our culture, do we? And of course, we don't have thrones or kings here either. But I trust that a few of you have been inside a palace or a throne room, perhaps on some European vacation or other. And most of the rest of you will have seen such things, at least in photographs or in films or read about them in books, so that you will be able to follow the psalmist inside this morning and see in your mind's eye what he's describing to us. A house, the Lord's house, verse 5, in which sits A throne, verse 2, and one seated on it. So just take yourself there now into this grand royal palace, into its magnificent throne room where the king sits in all of his majesty, verse 1. In fact, that's really what the psalmist wants us to see this morning. Not so much the palace or the throne room, but the king to whom they belong. Isn't that the focus of this psalm, the king? The Lord reigns, the psalmist says in verse 1. 
The Lord reigns. Or another way to translate it according to the NASB footnote is, the Lord has assumed kingship. And that translation, the Lord has assumed kingship, is what got me really realizing that that's what the psalmist is describing here. He's describing a king seated on a throne in his house. The Lord has taken his throne. He has sat down in his royal majesty. He has assumed kingship. The Lord reigns. That's where the psalmist would focus our attention this morning. He would have us say, As we read the 93rd Psalm, the same thing that the prophet Isaiah said in the 6th chapter of his prophecy. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. That's the picture of this psalm as well. That's the purpose of this psalm, to help us see the Lord sitting on his throne, to help us see him in his royal splendor, to help us see him as king. King over all creation. King over his own house. King over our individual lives. The Lord reigns. The Lord has assumed kingship. And the psalmist describes the Lord who reigns beautifully in this psalm. And I just want to walk you through this marvelous depiction of our king. Noticing, first of all, the king's clothing. The king's clothing In verse 1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Now, it's interesting that the king should be described as wearing clothing since the king, namely the Lord, does not have a body, right? God is spirit. God is not flesh like we are. Now, of course, he became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. I know that, but I don't think that's what the psalmist is referring to here when he speaks of the Lord being clothed with majesty. The psalmist is referring to God on his heavenly throne, God who is without a physical body, and yet who is somehow clothed splendidly, just like you might see an earthly king in all of his magnificent royal robes and crown and so on. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. Clothed with majesty. What does all this mean? What is this majesty that God is clothed with? If it's not the sort of dazzling outerwear that we might find in an earthly throne room, how does the invisible God clothe himself? What does the king of the universe wear, so to speak, to convey just how splendid he is? Well, it's possible that the psalmist has in mind here things like the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud by which God made his presence known to the people of Israel in those days of old. God is not a pillar of fire and he is not a pillar of cloud, but he wrapped himself in these things like garments and came to the Israelites in this garb so that they would know his presence among them. And it was a majestic presence, wasn't it? The fire and the cloud must have been amazing to see, don't you think? What an awesome sight to be out in the wilderness, moving through the desert as God led his people for those 40 years, and to see one or other of these great wonders, this great fire, this great cloud moving through the landscape. Or so many years later, to see the cloud filling the temple when Solomon dedicated it to the Lord. Or to hear the Lord speaking to Moses 
from the midst of a burning bush. Or to see not only cloud and fire, but we might also think of what Isaiah saw that day in Isaiah chapter 6. He doesn't tell us exactly what God himself looked like when he saw the Lord, but he does speak of his clothing, doesn't he? The train of his robe, Isaiah says, filling the temple. And once again, the living God making himself known in a visible way, clothing himself so that his people can see his presence with them, though they cannot see him. And when he clothes himself like this, it is so often with majesty, with grandeur, with beauty. And maybe this is what the psalmist has in mind when he speaks of God being clothed with majesty. That when God chose in the Old Testament to wrap himself in a visible cloak, to manifest his presence with his people, it was sometimes a majestic sight to behold. A picture of how awesome must be the God who robes himself in such splendor. And that's the point, isn't it? Not just the majesty of the clothing, but what the majesty of the clothing says about the one who's wearing it. That's why kings wear what they wear, isn't it? And that's why God cloaks himself in majesty. If God's robe is so splendid, in other words, if his robe fills the temple, if his robe is made of fire or the most magnificent cloud, then what must God himself be like? What must the one be like who is fit to wear such beautiful garments? He is clothed in majesty because he himself is so majestic. And along those lines, it may also be so that when the psalmist speaks of God being clothed with majesty, that he may not just have in mind the visible ways that God sometimes made his presence known, but he may be thinking of God's very character traits themselves as God's clothing. The New Testament uses clothing language to speak of our character traits, doesn't it? Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Put these things on. Put these character traits on like clothing, in other words. Your character traits, your attributes, and mine, for better or for worse, hang around our necks and adorn our lives like clothing. And maybe that is what the psalmist is saying about the attributes of God. His holiness, His power, His omniscience, His righteousness, His justice hang about His shoulders like a king's royal robes. When we consider the Lord's attributes, what He is like in the very essence of His person, we say with the psalmist, the Lord reigns, He is clothed with majesty. Now, I remind you, the Lord does have much homelier garments too. He has garments, which he always wears simultaneously with his royal robes, that smell like a father in whose lap we can climb and be loved. These are his attributes of his kindness and his grace and his patience and his love. Attributes which in no way conflict with his holiness and power and justice and so on. A majestic king may still be with his children, a loving, adoring, kindly, heavenly father, kindly father, right? And such is our God. But in this portion of Holy Scripture, our psalmist chooses to emphasize God's majesty, his royal splendor, those attributes of his person that make us want to bow our faces to the ground and kiss his ring and worship at his footstool. 
And we see that in the second part of verse 1, don't we? Where the psalmist tells us that one of the attributes with which the Lord is clothed is strength, power, might. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. One of the attributes that hangs from God's waist like a king's brilliant sword is his great power, his strength. We see that presented to us in this psalm, not only as a piece of the king's clothing, but also as we look out, secondly, upon the king's realm. That's the second heading this morning, the king's realm. Remember that the psalmist has brought us into the king's palace and into his very throne room to see the king's majesty as he sits in his royal robes, to see him girded with strength, verse 1b. But now, as we consider the strength of Our king, the psalmist, in the very last part of verse 1, takes us away from the throne for a moment or two and has us look, as it were, out the window to consider the realm that stretches out before us, ruled by our God. Indeed, he says, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. What he's saying is, look at God on his throne. See him girded with strength. Verse 1b. But now come over here and look out the window and see how stable, how firmly established is the realm which he rules and you'll see his strength in action. You'll see his strength there as well. Look at how well God rules his realm, the psalmist is saying. And you'll see how powerful he actually is. All these thousands of years and the earth has never derailed from its orbit around the sun which orbit is at the precise distance from that great star so as to sustain life on the earth god does that this planet with a built-in irrigation system so that water keeps spreading around the earth by means of rain and rivers and making way for life wherever it goes god is doing that Jonathan was talking about similar things a couple of Wednesdays ago in his sermon and saying that there are, of course, natural laws. There is science that explains how all of these things work, right? But who upholds the science? God does. We live in a world, for instance, that spectacularly reproduces food for its inhabitants. We live in a world where one tomato seed planted into the ground and watered can produce dozens of tomatoes each of which tomatoes contains several more seeds, each of which seeds has the potential to produce dozens more tomatoes and hundreds more seeds, and on and on and on and on. I tell you, God is incredibly wise, and he has control over this planet, does he not? As we sang some of us when we were children, he's got the whole world in his hands. He really does. Indeed, the world is firmly established It will not be moved. The earth is not going to implode upon itself. The world is not going to cease to exist until God says that it shall be so. The planet and really the universe in which the planet hangs are completely under control of our almighty God. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't disturbances from time to time. In fact, verse 3 mentions one of them, doesn't it? The floods have lifted up, O Lord. 
The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. I thought God was in control, but when I look out the window of his throne room and I see the seas beyond, they look out of control. There's a storm. And it looks like destruction is sure. And there are times like that, aren't there? Where creation seems to be out of control. Where it is out of control from a human standpoint. And we can't do anything to stop it. When I read Psalm 93.3, for instance, I can't help but think of the hurricanes and the tsunamis that we have all witnessed on the television and seen on the internet in the last decade. Doing horrific damage and with power that no one and nothing in this world can curb, much less stop. And when I look out the window of God's palace and see that taking place in the distance, the floods rising, the waves pounding, Can I still say that God is in absolute control? Can I still say, verse 1, the world is firmly established, it will not be moved? doesn't seem like I can, but according to verse 4, yes, I can say that. More than the sound of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. More than the waters, the Lord on high is mighty. The Lord is more powerful than the typhoons, more powerful than than the tidal waves. And any time he wants, he can simply speak a word and they'll be still. We see that in Mark chapter 4, don't we? Jesus and his disciples are overcome by this great storm on the Sea of Galilee and the sea is so violent that the disciples are beginning to think they might not ever make it out alive. And maybe we can picture them tugging on the ropes bailing water like crazy and doing everything they know how to do. But nothing's going to avail, is it? From their standpoint, things are completely out of control. And then Jesus gets up from his nap and simply speaks the words, Hush, be still, and the water immediately becomes like glass. More than the sound of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And I tell you, that is true not just of local tempests on a lake like Galilee, but the Lord can do exactly the same with the hurricane and the tidal wave, exactly the same with the forest fire, exactly the same with the tornado, and exactly the same with the man-made disasters that we all create in our lives that are infinitely worse than the atmospheric ones. Now, he does not always do so. God does not always say to the floods, hush, be still. And he does not usually tell us why he chooses not to do so. He does not always say why he allows the waves to crash down upon us and does not exercise his power to stop them. But it's not because he doesn't have the power to stop them. The king is absolutely sovereign over his realm. He does... Whatever he pleases, we're told in Psalm 115. In fact, Psalm 107 teaches us that not only does God have the power to stop the waves, but that he is the one who actually sends them for his own good purposes. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Psalm 135.6 Or... In Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand. He does according to his will 
in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That's right. God is sovereign over mankind too. Now you may not think that when you look out the window into the realm of his subjects. In fact, man is actually the most unruly part of all God's creation, isn't he? Isn't that true of us? Yes, the weather and the animals and the plants don't always do what God originally created them to do. But the reason they don't is because of man. The seas didn't ever decide to rebel against their maker, did they? No, the seas are unruly because the maker put them under a curse. And the reason he put them under a curse was because of the way man and our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. And so we are the ones who have brought the hurricanes and the tsunamis into this world. We are the ones who have brought it thorns and thistles and sweaty labor and pain and childbirth and every other ill. Now that's not to say that any individual sin or any particular societal sin is necessarily always or even usually the direct cause of some tragedy or trial. In other words, just because a tornado tears through one town doesn't necessarily mean that those townspeople were more wicked than the folks in the next town who got passed over. God can do it that way. Sometimes he does. But the fact of the matter is that tragedy and difficulty often strike, not because of any particular sin, but because sin in general has brought the world under this horrific curse of sickness and pain and tragedy and death. And yet at the end of the day, it is still sin that's done it. Mankind's sin that has created all the problems. And far from blaming it all on Adam and Eve, we have to confess that we have continued right in their train, haven't we? We humans continue to be the most unruly part of God's creation. And as I say then, when we look out over the king's realm, when we stare out the window and look at the collection of his human subjects, it may not seem like God has as much ability to stop their roaring as he does to calm the seas. But I submit to you that he absolutely does. God is absolutely sovereign even over the affairs of men. Anytime he wants, he can stop you or I dead in our tracks. Just as Jesus stopped the waves on Galilee that day. Witness Nebuchadnezzar walking around on his roof that day and congratulating himself for all his kingly majesty. Nebuchadnezzar was the kind of man who would have thought Psalm 93 should have been written about him. And he was a powerful man. Who on earth could stand against Nebuchadnezzar? Who could stop his pride and his idolatry and his wickedness? Answer, the great king. Because do you remember the story in Daniel chapter 4? God made that great king think that he was a farm animal. And he spent seven years out in the grass, out in the fields eating grass like a cow until such time that he recognized, quote, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. God is the ruler. God gives to rulers the right to rule, and he does it upon whomever he wishes. And after seven years, Nebuchadnezzar finally got it. And it was actually he who said those words about the Lord. He does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand. Not even Nebuchadnezzar. No one can ward off his hand. Now why doesn't God do that with every sinner? 
God doesn't like sin. God hates sin. Why doesn't he stop us all short like that? Why doesn't he tell us all to hush and be still? Well, perhaps for the same sorts of reasons he doesn't always stop the tidal waves of the typhoons. Which reasons we mere mortals are not privy to. But whatever God's reasons for not stopping sin, it's not because he can't. Mankind does not continue in sin and rebellion against God because God is unable to stop it. No, the king is in complete control over his realm. And if you want further evidence that God is sovereign even over the affairs of men, just look at the change he's made in your life, believer. If you know your own heart, you'll know that you didn't save yourself. You didn't come to Christ on your own. You didn't repent of sin because you were so godly. You haven't grown out of certain sin habits because you have such strong willpower. God did those things in you. He gave you the strength of will to say yes to Christ. He gave you the strength of will to say no to sin. He has changed you, hasn't he? He has subdued you. In much gentler ways, perhaps, than he did with Nebuchadnezzar, but he has subdued you if you're in Christ. And he will continue to subdue your sin nature all the way until Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, it will be more clear to you than ever that mankind was never beyond God's absolute control. Because on that day, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And on that day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's assured God will make it happen. He is sovereign. On that day, it will be as clear as clear can be that mankind was never any more beyond God's authority than were the waves on Lake Galilee that day. Sometimes he chooses to rest and not to deliver as soon as we think. Sometimes he chooses to rest and not to stop sin when we think he should. But when he decides to stand and to speak, all the earth will obey him. So look out the window at the king's realm and know this morning that he is in complete control of it all. More than the sound of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. So then the king's clothing, which shows us his majesty, the king's realm, which shows us his might. And then thirdly, briefly, let's turn our eyes upon the king's throne. The king's throne in verse 2. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. So continue picturing yourself there in the throne room, standing among God's courtiers and looking upon his throne, the symbol of his majesty, the emblem of his might, the sign of his authority in his realm. We stand there looking at his throne. And we might turn to one another or perhaps even to some of the saints of bygone days and say, that is an amazing throne. Where did he get that marvelous piece of handiwork? Where did he produce? Where did he procure such an impressive seat? But as we look around, no one can remember back that far. No one can be found who ever saw the chair being set down at the head of this throne room. We might even turn to one or other of the angels. But they don't know any more than we do. Yes, they were there when God laid the foundation of the earth. They were there, probably freshly created themselves, when its cornerstone was laid. In fact, they were the morning stars in Job 
38, who sang together that day. These angels, the sons of God, were the ones who shouted for joy that day when God created everything good. But they would tell you that even on that first day, even then, the throne was already in place. And the Lord was comfortably seated upon it as though he'd been resting in it already for quite some time. And I know that God is spirit, so that the throne we're talking about is not made of wood or gold or velvet like something you might find in Buckingham Palace. In fact, because God is spirit, his throne may be something like the clothing we talked about in verse 1, more of a metaphor for a truth about God than an actual object in itself. And so my imagining are looking at God's throne and wondering when it was made. I know that's a little bit fanciful, fanciful, but I hope you get the point. God's throne, whatever it actually may or may not be like, is symbolic of his rule. And the point of verse 2 is that this throne, this rule of God as king, never had a beginning. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. That's what Psalm 93.2 is saying, isn't it? God's throne is established from old. He has always sat upon his throne as sovereign of the universe. He has always been king. Indeed, he was seated on his throne and reigning as king before there ever was such a thing as the universe for him to reign over. You are from everlasting, the psalmist says, which is just to say that God never had a beginning. No one ever created God. God did not morph out of some preexistent substance or being. God did not come from anywhere. God simply is and always has been. That's why he told Moses to call him simply, I am. I am. Period. You can't say that. I can't say that. The kings of this world in whose shadows we are alternately tempted either to place way too much faith or to shudder with way too much fear cannot say that. Only God is from everlasting. Only God is I am. And as I read this week from the pen of A.W. Tozer, how completely satisfying to turn from our limitations to a God who has none. Our God has no limitations. Our God had no beginning. His throne is the oldest throne that there is. He is, verse 2, from everlasting. And though this psalmist doesn't say it here, Moses in Psalm 90 tells us that our king is not only from everlasting, but to everlasting. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world even from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. And that should be of great comfort to us who are not from everlasting but who will be to everlasting somewhere. God is so much bigger, so much grander, so much more solid than we often allow ourselves to think. But this psalm puts a rock under our feet, doesn't it? Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. So we've considered the king's clothing, the king's realm, the king's throne. And then let's finally consider the king's words. The king's words in verse 5. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Or as the English Standard Version translates it, your decrees are very trustworthy. Every king makes decrees, doesn't he? Every king sits on his throne 
or stands on the great balcony of his castle overlooking his subjects below in the courtyard and speaks powerfully to the people of his realm as to how he plans to rule them. Every king makes promises to his people. Every king announces his plans to defend and prosper them. Every king issues laws, decrees as to how his kingdom will be ruled. Every king issues his testimonies, verse 5. And every realm listens eagerly to see what the king will promise and what he will announce and what he will decree. But not every king can actually make good on his promises, can he? Some of them never intend to do so, and others who have the best intentions cannot always follow through. And not every king passes wise laws either. Sometimes they pass laws that end up being a burden to their people or laws that have unintended consequences. But not the king in whose throne room we have been sitting this morning. His testimonies are fully confirmed. His words, in other words, never fail. His decrees have proven true time and time and time again. Joshua the great general who led the Israelites into the land of promise and who stood at their head as they drove out the pagan peoples and took possession of this land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua, when he came to die, said this to the people of Israel, Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. And that has ever been and ever will be the testimony of God's believing people. Not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. His testimonies are fully confirmed. His promises, though they be more grandiose than any earthly king ever dreamed of making, his promises never fall to the ground unfulfilled. His plans never prove unworkable. His laws are never a burden, but rather are fully confirmed to those who take them seriously. Your testimonies are fully confirmed, says the psalmist. Or again in the ESV, your decrees are very trustworthy. Isn't that good to know about our king? Living in America as we do, living in the land where government is to be of the people, by the people, and for the people, we may not always be comfortable talking about kings and decrees and edicts and thrones. We're naturally suspicious of human monarchs and often of human government in general, even democratically elected government. And understandably so. We, we realize that men will not always follow through on their promises. We realize that many times their plans will be foolish or poorly thought out. We realize that their laws can be unjust, but the king of Psalm 93, the king of the Bible, the king who rules over all the other kings, the king whom we worship in the person of Jesus Christ, of this king, the psalmist says unequivocally, your testimonies are fully confirmed. Your decrees are very trustworthy. You will do what you say you will do. None of your plans, Lord, will be foolhardy. None of them will be poorly conceived. None of your laws will ever be overbearing or unjust. You can trust this king. David puts this so beautifully in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Or more simply, here in Psalm 93, your testimonies are fully confirmed. Now I have to say two more things and say them relatively quickly before we finish. The first is to ask, how do we respond to such a God? How do we respond? We've stood in his palace this morning. We've entered into his very throne room. We've seen the king's clothing majestic in its beauty and grandeur. We've considered the king's realm and understood that he governs it absolutely and that nothing in the universe is beyond his control. We've gazed upon the king's ancient throne and realized that it is so old because the one who sits on it never had a beginning. And we've thought about the king's words, his testimonies, his decrees, which always prove wise and faithful and true because he is wise and faithful and true. But what do we do now? Should we sing his praises about all these things with joy in our hearts? Absolutely. We'll do so in a few moments. Should we sometimes just sit in silence and awe at this majestic ruler of all that there is? That would be an appropriate response as well. Should we respond by believing his promises more than we've ever done because his testimonies are fully confirmed? Well, greater faith would be a fitting response as well. But I just want you to notice before we leave this psalm what the psalmist says should be the upshot of the vision of God that he has given us this morning. How does the psalmist call upon us to respond to this majestic, mighty, eternal, faithful king? With holiness. Verse 5, with holiness, holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. He's brought us into the throne room. He's shown us this great king. And then he says to the king in the hearing of those who are with him, Lord, we're in your house today. We've seen how majestic you are. Holiness befits your house. Holiness, those who sit in the king's throne room, those who are made his courtiers, those who are given access to his house, must live and serve and worship in that house with clean hands and with pure hearts. If the king that we've been admiring in Psalm 93 is really your king, then what befits you as his subject is to live your life with all zeal to obey his commandments, with all zeal to be holy. As he is holy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Are you holy? Some of us may even shy from that word because it sounds almost too good to be true. But the Bible calls us to be holy. Are you holy? I know none of us are completely holy. But are you growing in holiness? Do you want to be holy? Or are there sins in your life that you're coddling? Sins perhaps that you're hiding? Sins that you're excusing? Sins that you're just ignoring? Or sins, perhaps some of you, frankly, that you're feeding? Oh, you don't, you don't want to be clean for your God? Don't you want to stand before this king day by day with clean garments? Can you really want anything less than that, given how wise and trustworthy and fully confirmed his commandments actually are? 
Remember this, brothers and sisters. We've seen a spectacular vision of our God today. And we have, if we are in Christ, been called and given the right to dwell in His very house. And the only fitting way to live in the palace of the King is to live holy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. And then let me close with this. We've been marveling today at a God who is sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. We've been marveling at a God who is bedecked like no king was ever bedecked, in robes of royal splendor and majesty and beauty. We've been marveling at a God who rules over a realm as large as the universe and whose subjects, though unruly, are never beyond his sovereign control. We've been marveling at a God whose promises never fail and whose decrees are never burdensome. But I cannot conclude this morning without reminding you that when we turn over to the pages of the New Testament, we follow this majestic king into a very different setting, don't we? In the New Testament, we do not merely find God sitting on his throne, but actually venturing out into his realm to live among his subjects, to rub shoulders with them, to actually become one of them. And to live happily and obediently under the very same laws that he had given to them. And as he goes out into their towns and villages, he no longer comes to them robed in clothes and robed in clouds and wrapped in fire. He comes to them wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger and growing up to wear the attire of the working class. He no longer comes to them as a God who is only spirit, but as God made flesh. He's the same God, the same king with the same power and the same authority and the same sovereignty and the same majesty and the same eternality and the same faithfulness. But now he's wearing the clothes of a carpenter. Now he's appearing very differently from the throne room scene in which we see him in Psalm 93. Now he's identifying with his subjects to the extent of taking on their humanity and being tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And I say to you, what a marvelous God. What a great and wonderful king. But his subjects refused to believe or to admit that he actually was king, didn't they? And they stripped him so that far from being clothed in majesty, now in his humanity he was not clothed at all. And they crucified him so that now in his humanity he was lofty and exalted, not on a throne but on a cross. All so that his subjects might be washed clean. All so that they might be made fit to actually come and dwell in this house that we've been reading about this morning. Never forget these things. Never forget what the king did so that you could come into his presence in this house. Never forget that the God who has clothed and girded himself with strength also girded himself with the frailty of human flesh so that he might save you. Never forget that the God of the throne room is also the God of the cross. Never forget that the one who is clothed with majesty laid for three days clothed in a burial shroud so that you might be saved. Though he was rich, 2 Corinthians, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Someday Jesus will come to this world again, not in frailty, but girded with strength. Someday he will come again, not to hang on a cross, but to sit on his throne. Someday the tabernacle of God will be among men, and the throne of the king will be set down right here on planet earth. And he will be there on it, robed in dazzling white. 
And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we will say in that day with more clarity than with ever before, the Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. But when we bow and when we kiss his ring and when we worship at his footstool, we will see in those hands and feet the imprint of the nails which he wears forever as a reminder of his great love. And on that day, we will praise him even all the more. Father, thank you that you loved us enough to send your son, Jesus. Very God of very God, thank you that you loved us enough to come and take on flesh for us to leave this throne to leave the splendor of heaven and to walk among us, to be one of us, to die for us so that someday we might actually come into this throne room, not just be carried there in our mind's eye by the psalmist, but actually walk into the very throne room of God and be welcomed as his children. Thank you for this, Father and Son, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing us, many of us in this room, to see and to trust this Jesus. And we ask in his name, amen.